on this episode of Newt's World, in his new book, No Trade is Free, Robert Lighthizer challenges the way we think about trade policy in this country. He has more than 40 years of experience litigating, negotiating, and editorializing against the failed policies of a one-side free trade as part of both the Reagan and Trump administrations and as a private lawyer. He traces both the history of and damage done by these policies and offers an incisive and highly informed alternative scenario. The political establishments of both parties, under the influence of multinational corporations and importers, have been unwilling or unable to recognize their trade policy mistakes, which put the American worker and manufacturer at risk amid a quest to maximize corporate profits, economic efficiency, and cut the price of television and toys. Here to talk about his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest and my good friend, Robert Lighthizer. He served in President Trump's cabinet as the United States Trade Representative from 2017 to 2021 and was a Deputy U.S. Trade Representative under President Reagan. He is one of America's most respected experts in international trade, having negotiated dozens of international agreements and practiced trade law for more than 40 years. Bob, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Well, thank you very much, Newt, for having me. As you know, I'm a great fan of yours, and I'm just going to do a one-minute hijack right now. And that is when they introduce you as former speaker, I always say they don't understand the context, that you were the first Republican speaker in 40 years and the second in 60, going back literally to the Roosevelt years. And I can remember Bob Dole, who, you know, I worked for and loved, telling me that he thought what you did in 94 was more significant than what they did in 1980 when they took over the Senate. So I just have to say that. And since you were speaker, we've had four more Republicans. So that was such a revolution, every bit as big as the Reagan revolution. And I just want to put that on the record. Now, I both appreciate you saying that personally, but also it's a great excuse for me to bring my book in, March to the Majority, which actually just came out and which basically tells the story of what was a 16-year project to grow a Republican majority in the House for the first time since 1954, and then how we negotiated for four years with Clinton. And I have to say, your book, I think, is really important because, and I plead guilty here, I was one of those who bought the notion that if only we helped China open up economically, they would then open up socially and they'd open up politically. And we were just wrong, period. It was totally wrong. You were right. We were wrong. And it's in that context that I value so much your new book, No Trade is Free. But talk about something I now agree with, although at the time I was on the other side, why it was a disaster in 2000 to give China permanent most favored nation status. So if we recall what was going on, we had a policy of trade after the Second World War. And at this point, the United States is the biggest economy by orders of magnitude, the only real economy left in the world. And we basically wanted to beat the Soviet Union. And we went through a period where we had trade deals, some of which were okay for us, some of which weren't, but it didn't matter. We we built Europe, we rebuilt Japan, and ultimately beat the Soviet empire. All right. Then you find yourself in the 90s, 
there's this hubris and the Clinton kind of people were the kind that were susceptible to hubris, right? The really smart people, right? We're really the elite smart people. And there was all this talk about the end of history and all this craziness. And at that time, we did three really bad things. And the last one is what you just mentioned. And it was the biggest. First, we did NAFTA, which was a mistake, was not well done. But in those days, any deal was a good deal, in the opinion of the great geniuses. And then we did this Uruguay round, the last great trade negotiation, which created the WTO and kind of a court, if you would, where we entered into this incorrect thinking that somehow foreign bureaucrats from places like China would somehow rule on American economic measures in a fair way. And then the third thing, the biggest one, just the horrible one, was we granted most favored nation treaty treatment to China. And the notion really was what you believe. And it was the mainstream view was that they're going to become Switzerland if you just transfer enough American jobs to them. It's never worked. It was complete madness. And I would say there's this view of some people, well, how could you predict it? In 1997, I wrote an article, the first article on this for the New York Times. And you'll recall that in the 96 campaign, which I was involved with, you'll remember, in that campaign, there was this so-called Indonesian money, right? You remember that, that went into the Clinton campaign. And I wrote this article and basically said it wasn't Indonesian money, it was Chinese money. And I showed how it was actually money from China. And then I said, what does China want? And I said, they want permanent, most favored nation treatment. They want to get in the WTO. And if they do that, and this is a quote, no American manufacturing job will be safe. And it turned out to be completely true. But it was built on this kind of myth that we had sort of won. The only flaw in the myth is that it ignores human nature, right? It, it ignores the fact that everyone's trying to get an edge. And then you saw what happened economically was this. So the Chinese, before we granted permanent most favored nation, which they call permanent normal trade relations, and they created this euphemism, you'll recall, so that they wouldn't sound like they were favoring the communist Chinese. So what had happened before that is they had the lower rates but they could be taken away any year by a vote of Congress. For example, a U.S. businessman wouldn't put a billion dollar plan in China because he could lose his economic advantage the next year. When they made it permanent, then initially all these U.S. companies decided, you know, they bought this sort of myth that there's a billion consumers there that are all going to be buying Cadillacs. And they moved their plants over there. And what most of them were trying to do really was get a little edge on manufacturing, lower prices for labor, fewer environmental restrictions and the like, and then sell back to the United States. And you had this big shift so that we went from a trade deficit with them in the 20s, low 20s, billions of dollars to $120 billion in a couple of years. And then, of course, it snowballed, right? And now it is where it is. It, whatever it is, $380 billion in goods last year. I'm curious because this whole deal that led to huge foreign investment in China. Assume that the Chinese had the rule of law in the same sense that we do in private property in the same sense we do. But isn't it true that virtually every company now operating in China has a cell inside the company of the Chinese Communist Party to ensure that the right doctrine is being communicated? Yeah, that's for sure true. You know, I say we take great credit, we and the Trump administration and President Trump, in making people realize how big the problem is in China. But we were aided 
significantly by Xi Jinping, right, who has sort of revealed that what they really are, are a totalitarian communist state. So there was this kind of a notion in his predecessors of hide your strength and bide your time, right? Pretend like you're helping, but all you're doing really is trying to build up your own strength, your own technology, and your own wealth from transfers of trade surpluses to you. And then now we have a president in China who's like, it's our time. We're not going to hide our time anymore. And he's much bolder and he's shown people how they always were, but now it's more open. And one of the things they do is they do have those cells in almost all the businesses. And I tell people analytically, there's a couple things you have to think about in China. One, there are no free companies. There are no free companies. There is state-owned enterprises and there are state-controlled enterprises. And that includes U.S. joint ventures. They are controlled by the state in the sense that if they get out of line, they lose their investment or they lose their edge. And the second thing is that no business really makes money in China unless the Communist Party of China wants them to make that money. So they make the money for as long as the party thinks it's in the party's interest or in China's interest, if you want to put it that way, and as much as they think it's in their interest. So I'll give you just one example, and there are a million of them. I have some in the book, but this one's not in the book. The Ball Corporation, like in 2015, was the biggest producer of beverage containers in the United States and in China. All right. Three years later, they're still the biggest in the United States, and they're out of China. And what happened? China took the business know-how, took the technology, created their own companies, and then just all the customers left Ball Corporation. So Ball Corporation made money in China while the party thought it was in their interest to create this industry for themselves. On a grander scale, you can see a similar pattern, and it happened in steel. It happened in all of them. You can see a similar pattern right now in the auto industry, right? And auto is such a big part of trade, but you can see now... These foreign companies are making less and less money. The Chinese are the biggest manufacturers, Chinese companies of cars in the world. And they're the, now, for the first time, the biggest exporters of cars in the world. To what extent is this a system that can just keep going? And to what extent, as India and others come online, do the Chinese find themselves in a much more competitive and much more difficult environment? In my opinion, it is going to continue indefinitely as long as we have a stupid policy that encourages it. So I like to say we need, before we get to the economics, the sort of geopolitics, you have to, it's like a two-step process. One, do you understand that they are a lethal threat, that they are an adversary and a dangerous adversary? And perhaps the most dangerous adversary the United States has faced in our existence certainly the one with the biggest economy compared to ours. Even in the Second World War, the combination of Japan and Germany was not as close to the size of our economy. So well, the first thing is, do you realize that they are this problem? And if you do, then you have to change the policy. You can't continue to transfer hundreds of billions of dollars to an adversary whose objective is to become number one in the world and to harm the United States and to harm not only the United States, but the Western system of free democracies, right? Because they have their own system and they think that's the system of the future. And they go around telling the world that we're on decline, we're finished. And if you want to be with the winners, be with them because theirs is the right system. 
So economically, how long can they do it? I think they can do it for a bloody long time unless we take the steps to stop what's going on, to change the status quo. Let me give you a couple of numbers, Newt. So like, if you think about how much money do we transfer to them in a year, all right? So trade deficits, let's say, and these numbers shift depending on what basis you're using, but say we transfer $380 billion to them in trade deficits, okay? We estimate maybe another $300 billion in stolen technology. Now, the number sometimes goes as high as $600 billion. Then you've got a couple of hundred billion dollars that's transferred that's kind of off the record. It's off the books. I won't go into the details unless you want to, but it's this de minimis idea where we don't even have a record of what it is because of a stupid law that we passed a few years ago. And then you have money we're transferring to them because they transshipped through Vietnam and other places. So you add it all up, you're at six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars a year that we're transferring to a lethal adversary. And you say, well, how important is that to them? So say their GDP is $17 trillion and they grow at 5%. We're transferring just about the entire amount of their growth to them. So it is really, really important. And if you look even at the real numbers for their defense, we're transferring to them more than they spend on defense. So I like to say, Newt, that we're building up the biggest army and the biggest navy in the world, and they're in China. They're not in the United States. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com slash book. I know one of the points you'd made was that if you added it all up between 2001 and 2021, the U.S. actually imported 5.39 trillion more in Chinese goods and services than we exported to them. I mean, five trillion three hundred ninety billion dollars more. By the way, it's even bigger now because one of the things that we can talk about or not talk about is really not in the book because of the timing. Is that all this crazy stimulus money that President Biden gave to the consumers? A huge amount of that was just shifted right to stimulate economic growth in China because these people have this money and they went online and they spent all this money. So you see these numbers even going crazy. Let's say the time that you started, you said like 2000, 2001, when they got Herman Amifan and got the WTO, their GDP was like $1.2 trillion. Okay. And now it's $17 trillion. You look at how much we transferred And the compounding effect of all of that over a 20-year period, you know, we account for most of their economic growth. The Chinese economic miracle is largely a transfer of wealth from the United States to China. It is a policy of madness. And if you look at the cost-benefit analysis, what did we get for it? Largely, 
we got consumables. Most of it doesn't even exist anymore. The stuff that we bought 20 years ago was in a trash heap somewhere. So we have, in exchange for the ownership of our own property, we have shifted it to China and got in return television sets, as you say, and T-shirts and blenders and crazy stuff. It's a policy of madness. They've made an enormous effort to infiltrate the American academic world. It's really impressive how much they've gone after professors and institutions and how much money they've poured into American universities. As you know, I mean, I've been fascinated with the amount of money the University of Pennsylvania got from communist China as it was funding the center for Joe Biden. I think there was an MIT professor who was arrested for basically having spied for the Chinese. They have consciously tried to penetrate our academic system, both to get secrets and also, I think, just to build influence. This is something I do talk about in the book. I mean, you've got more than 300,000 students over here, the vast majority of which are going to go back. They're all connected somehow to their intelligence. You have these Confucius Institutes. You have Chinese nationals working in international labs. The penetration of business is crazy. You see a businessman, and I have some examples in the book of a normal businessman, and he'll say something, you know, fairly benign, and then you'll see him the next day apologizing for it, and you realize that somebody from China called and said, you got to correct that. I mean, there are a lot of Americans, hardworking, blue-collar people who have their investments in funds that are shipping some of that money to China. We can't even audit the books of the Chinese companies. But the influence peddling thing that you had is sort of in two categories. One is the normal kind of influence peddling. And then there's this University of Pennsylvania. And by the way, money transferred to the University of Delaware that we also think could be Chinese. I'll give you another thought. Would you like to know how much China, I don't know the answer to this, but how much Chinese money is in the Clinton Foundation? Can you even imagine the size of that number? And whatever it is, whatever the number is, it is a bargain from their point of view, given the trillions of dollars that we've transferred. So it's very dangerous. And I'll give you just one final thought on this since you pushed the wrong button and got me talking on this. We're trying to find out, Newt, what the bank records are and the telephone calls, what all this, you know, that's going on that James Comer is doing such a great job and Chuck Grassley and these great people trying to do it over the objection of the Democrats. We're trying to find that out. Well, where do you think there is a copy of every email? every WeChat, every bank account, every recording of every public and private meeting between the Bidens and the Chinese. There's a file in China that's, you know, a foot thick, and every one of these things are in there. And that's another way of saying for the first time in our history, if any of this is true, they have the power really to determine our next election. It's a flabbergasting thought, but we're trying to uncover all this and they have it all, all of it. One of the things that President Trump did was establish a special unit at the Department of Justice to go after Chinese espionage. And then the Biden administration dismantled it. It was just insanity. You know, I assume, and you see more and more indications of a softening. They call it stabilizing. So my own view, you can draw your own conclusions. They're either naive or influenced by something beyond the obvious. But if you look at where they are now, a lot of their actions are moving in the direction of so-called stabilizing, which is another word for detente, right? Which means 
you basically are going to make concessions so that the current trajectory doesn't change. Well, the current trajectory of our economic relationship, as I just said, vastly favors China. So one, you decide they're an adversary. Two, you want to lock in the trajectory. Well, they want to lock in the trajectory. We shouldn't. We should want to change the trajectory so that we move ahead of them rather than have them catch up with us. We're in a very scary place. And what worries me even more is what will happen after the election. There's a limit to what anyone in this administration can do to sort of make concessions between now and the election because the American people very strongly, very strongly agree with us. But you wonder if there is an election and if they stay in, what they will do to make concessions to China. There's an awful lot of stake for our kids and our grandkids. In 2021 alone, more than 1,400 Chinese-born but U.S.-trained scientists left the U.S. to go back to China. And uh, in 2023, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute determined that China leads the United States in 37 out of 44 areas of key technology research. I mean, shouldn't this be a lot bigger national crisis? For sure it is. And by the way, that Australian study determined that a lot of these, we were so far behind that it was impossible to catch up. Chinese expertise going home, they have this thousand talents program and they pay them very heavily. They go back there. Plus, of course, they have influence over their family members who are back in China. Their own security laws say that every one of these people has to cooperate with security agency if asked to do so. They have vastly expanded the power of their security forces over Chinese business and Chinese individuals just in the last three or four years. They actually run police stations in the U.S. and around the world where they can remind people that they're still under Chinese control, even if they're in a different sovereign country. It's a system that, however this turns out, history will be very unkind to appeasers. It has been in the past and it will be in the future, I think. One of the areas I've recently been surprised by is the scale of the Chinese buying up American land, particularly around military bases. Is this something we ought to be dealing with directly? I think absolutely. So what is happening is you have this CFIUS, this Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, of which I was on it. Treasury headed it up, but they had the USTR. So I was on it and I signed two really good people to it. And I just said anything that's remotely fishy, we want to object to and we'll object to it and take it to the president, right? I'm not going to let some bureaucrat of the Treasury Department make these decisions. But it's got to be national security stuff. It needs to be expanded so that it's economic security as well. Another way to think of it is reciprocity. Do you think you could go and buy farmland in China? I don't care where it was. Of course, you can't buy a square inch of it. But we let them do it right near military bases solar panel farms and things near military bases. And none of that should be permitted. There's no U.S. interest in that. I mean, what's the possible offsetting interest? There isn't one other than for a handful of people that are going to get rich. So that whole CFIUS thing, which was strengthened during the Trump administration, means to be vastly strengthened again. 
And for me, I would just have an absolute ban on property ownership in this context by Chinese entities. There's just literally no reason for it. There's no upside to it. What was it like actually negotiating with the Chinese? That's a great question, Newt. The guy I dealt with, who was a vice premier, same level as the person that Secretary Yellen bowed to, was, I think, an honorable, honest guy, very smart, had spent some time at Harvard and spoke English. But we negotiated, of course, in Chinese. But what I found when I negotiated, and I have a, you know, a fair amount on this in there, and I put it in largely because I want posterity to see it, right, to have some access to it. But what you tended to do, and it wasn't just with the Chinese, for me when I negotiated, and I negotiated with a lot of people, I would talk to the senior level person at that level, but then I would usually end up shifting at some point my questioning and argument to whoever his expert was. Right, his or her expert was, you know, I did it with the Canadians, I did it with the Japanese, I did it with Europe because the, you find the person you're dealing with. In the case of China, that guy was really smart and he really knew his economic stuff. But when you would get like to agricultural, technical agricultural policy, which is very, very technical, right? I would have my brief so that I knew it, and I would then end up arguing or cross-examining, if you want, his expert. And I say it wasn't just unique to China, but it was most countries. And then just let him see how weak his own expert's argument is. Because there's a lot of other things going on, particularly in China. So you've got what Xi Jinping wants. And then he's got a wider group of sort of people under him that at some point you have to expand out and get their support. But you also have local government officials who have individual and independent economic interests in these things. And then you have bureaucrats who also you know, are very powerful and have their own bureaucratic power that comes. And when you're making these kinds of changes, it affects all of those people, right, in different kind of ways. So you can make an agreement. And I think we did in May of 2019, we had a kind of a breakdown because we sort of had most of an agreement and then they basically reneged on it. And I think they reneged because of the hardliners coming in and the local government people coming in and the bureaucrats coming in and all saying, whoa, this is going to change things in a way that we don't want. What was your reaction to the Yellen visit? I thought that, and I have been very supportive of the Biden people to the extent I can be. And they've got some good people in there. But the trend in the last several months is really more revealing. It's either because they have this alternative motivation or because they're giving up to big business in the United States and sort of throwing the workers under or because they think it'll have a negative impact politically on them next year or something. But whatever it is, they're showing a great deal of weakness. And I thought that, number one, asking and begging for meetings is always a mistake. It's just always a mistake. What we did is we acted and then the momentum was on them, right? We put tariffs in place. The momentum was on them to want the meetings. We never came in there and begged for meetings like that. And I'll give you another example. Ronald Reagan didn't, there were no cabinet meetings with the Soviets in Moscow, might have been in other places, but in Moscow for the first couple of years. When I went over there, I negotiated the long-term grain agreement and I was a deputy, not a cabinet level. I was one level below that. And I negotiated that agreement in 83 in the summer and fall of 83. I, at that time, knew it was the highest level Reagan official who had been in the Soviet Union. And then Jack Block, who was Secretary of Agriculture, when he went over to sign it a month or so later, he was the first cabinet person to be there. 
Ronald Reagan wasn't begging the Soviets. Remember, he was anti-detente. His view was we have to build up our army and build up our economy, and then we'll talk to the Soviets. And that's what he did in his second administration. So this notion of showing weakness in the face of an adversary, it just literally never works out well. I was really quite surprised by the way the whole thing went. And I'll tell you right now, I'll bet you there was no clear statement of our, I don't know this, of course, of our long-term strategic interests, our arguments. I'll bet you it was the weakest, softest presentation one could ever imagine. And the Chinese reacted as you would expect them to react. They go all around the world saying, you see, we told you America was in decline. Here's the proof. Right. The person who's bowing is clearly communicating being subordinate to the person they're bowing to. Absolutely. I was shocked. But I'll tell you, the Secretary of State's visit was sort of embarrassing, too. I guess somebody said, you know, one sort of embarrassed themselves and the other embarrassed the whole bloody country. I don't know how that works out. I thought in Blinken's case, there's a scene where he walks all the way across the stage to shake Xi Jinping's hand, and Xi Jinping just stands there and requires the American to literally come like 30 feet. But at least in that case, and I agree with you, and anyone who thinks this kind of symbolism isn't important is nuts, right? They're just nuts. It is important. That's what they use to propagandize. But at least in that case, you had a rank difference that was significant, right? But when you have people of equal rank and you're bowing to them, it's just, as I say, ignominious is the term that jumps to mind. I must say that Secretary Yellen bowing or kowtowing to the Chinese reminded me of Secretary of State Albright dancing with the North Korean dictator in the Clinton years and having no notion the signal she was sending the planet of acceptance of a guy who was a totally ruthless totalitarian who had actually shrunk the height of his own population by diverting resources into his nuclear program and away from feeding them. You have this passion on the left for appeasing your enemies. It's astonishing. I agree with that. I want to thank you, but I also just want to say, having watched you wage this fight when you were a pretty lonely voice and the entire establishment was on the other side, and then having you and Trump actually break through and begin to change things, I have the greatest admiration for your persistence and your courage and your steadiness. And I think that No Trade is Free is in that sense an important book because it both captures lessons you personally have learned from many years of doing it, and it lays out for us a practical, realistic approach to how we should be negotiating and what we should expect. So we're going to make sure that all of our listeners can get a copy of the book by going to our show page. There'll be a link to it. And I want to thank you for joining me. You're endlessly fascinating and remarkably knowledgeable. Well, I appreciate that. And as I say before, if you've got a bigger fan than me, it's because you married her. (laughs) I think I'll tell Callisto that. That's a great line. Anyway, but thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you to my guest, Robert Lighthizer. You can get a link to buy his new book, No Trade is Free, on our show page at newsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, 
And this is Newt's World. That's great! The pilot was chosen because of their skin color! Hey! I have to pretend to be mad you said that! Uh, no! I'm saying it like it's a good thing! Good! Because it's definitely a good thing! So good, I want to warn everyone on the plane about the good news! What a fabulous idea! Hey everyone, ladies, gentlemen, children, there are children on this plane? Oh, wonderful. Uh, great news. Really great news. Uh, this airline has decided to pick its pilots based on diversity. Oh, wonderful. My child is here. Ah, yeah, I'm so glad to witness history like this. Haha, <laughs> yeah, we really are gonna be history. Whoa, that's so great. I wish the people who built the plane were selected because they were black women. We need the person in the front of the plane to be a different color than the people in the back of the plane. Or the same skin color, haha, <laughs> I can't think of anything more important in a pilot than them looking like me. I flew in Desert Storm and got passed up for this job. I'm so happy for they them. Hey everyone, thank you for flying with us today. <laughs> to, to celebrate our new pilot's inaugural flight, we're just gonna leave the seatbelt signs on the whole time, if that's okay. Please, don't ask me for anything. In today's news, DEI Airlines Flight 267 has landed unconventionally with no survivors. It's suspected that white supremacist attitudes among passengers likely caused the pilot to lose control of the airline, with DEI Airlines opening an investigation into passenger conduct. And this news station has obtained audio of the flight's final moments from the flight's box of color. Oh, wow. I, uh, I've never been on a plane pointed in this direction before. Oh, how historic. Who says they're supposed to stay in the air anyway? I'm a retired pilot. Maybe I can help? Not to imply she needs my help or anything. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to imply that. Yeah, I think maybe it's time for white men to sit down and listen. Terrain. Sorry. Oh, we're really close Terrain. to the ground. Oh, wow. The airline released this statement earlier today. We at DEI Airlines would like to sincerely apologize. After reviewing black box audio from an unconventionally landed flight, it's been revealed that our customers failed to clap for our pilot after the plane made contact with the ground. White pilots receive applause every day, and this is an unacceptable double standard. We vow to do better and are starting by withholding settlement money from the passengers' families. 
Become a member at freedomtunes.com for exclusive cartoons.